Well, my name is Dean Annan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Village Church of Bartlett. So if we haven't met yet, I'm going to be right outside those uh, double doors after service. So please come out there. I'd love to shake your hands and get to know who you are. Today we start a three-week series entitled Foreigners, Enemies, and Outcasts. And you might say, what? Why? <laughs> so, to some of it might sound a little weird, a little offensive, but I assure you that's not our intention. The Gospel of John that we've been in digs into this. It digs into all those things that impact the human heart that matter to God. And so this is our series. Another way you could look at it maybe is this. Today, it's people we are inclined to avoid. Next week, people we are inclined to hate. The week after that, people we are inclined to sometimes overlook. We'll see God's divine love. We'll see Jesus' love. We'll see him in action in all these areas that challenge the human heart. And so I have a question for you. What comes to mind, and you don't have to say it out loud, <laughs> when you think of the word foreigner, I mean, we all have an idea, right? We have an opinion, at least. It's, it's usually because of our experiences or, or maybe what we've heard over the years, and we all form some kind of opinion. Well, the definition of a foreigner can be as simple as a foreigner is a person that is born in or comes from a country other than one's own. I know it's difficult sometimes. Sometimes you're wondering, I, I kind of feel like this sometimes, does that person value the same things I value? Or maybe that, that person, do I speak their language? Can we even communicate? But what we do know is God's heart. God's heart's really clear throughout all of Scripture. If you go all the way back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all those books, God's precise. He's clear. And what does he say? He says to show kindness to the foreigner. Today we're in a story, a story of Jesus going on a journey. He meets a foreign woman, a Samaritan woman. True story, historical narrative, found in John 4, verses 1 through 42, and that's where we're going to be. We're going to be just going right through the passage. So please turn there in your Bibles or, or turn on your Bibles. And as you go there, is anybody like the epic masterpiece, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? Anybody like that? Some of you do, some of you don't. Yeah, maybe you have another story that you really like, some story you grab onto. And, you know, why is that? It's because stories grab our attention. They get your emotions, and they'll get your intellects involved too. But they take you to meet people and places and there's a plot and then there's uh, tension after tension at times and climax and then there's a resolution. Stories are a powerful weapon to communicate. Stories in the Bible teach God's people about themselves and their relationship to God. Did you know that three quarters of the Old Testament is story? Did you know that half of the New Testament is story? Uh, a while ago we, we saw the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and Jesus together. And in a few weeks, as we move on here, we're going to hear more story after story as God communicates his powerful truth through historical narrative to us, his people. And so today, what I want to do is let the story tell the story. I'm going to try to get out of the way and let the passage speak for itself. And at the end, we'll wrap it up and get to a big idea. But let's begin. John chapter 4, verse 1. Our first scene. Scene 1. Jesus goes, or maybe the subtitle could be Jesus' Necessary Journey, first six verses. So before we get there, what's happening? Our, our setup is the Passover's over, 
Jesus was in Jerusalem, Passover was over. He met with Nicodemus. We knew about that from before. And now Jesus is going north to Galilee. And why is he leaving? Is he just going home? Let's take a look. The first three verses say this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, that's John the Baptist, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the first reason, first reason he's leaving is because it's not time yet for the big showdown. What's the big showdown? The big showdown between the Pharisees and Jesus, and that's coming soon, but it's not that time yet. God's timing is coming. The hour has not come for that big showdown which is later. Jesus is becoming very, very popular, more popular than John the Baptist now. And is Jesus afraid of the Pharisees? No, that's silly. Of course not, not afraid. But the hour is not the time for that conflict or that controversy yet. That's one reason. Second reason is there's, there's something else here, another reason why Jesus is leaving and he's going north. It's a little bit hidden initially until we read on. But this reason permeates the entire story. Look at verse four. And I think verse four is way more telling than it seems at the onset. Verse four says this, and he had to pass through Samaria. Look at the map. Is John the apostle lying? Of course not. He's not lying. But there's another route. He doesn't have to pass or does he? Interesting. Because any Jew would try to swing to the east and go through the region of Perea uh, even east of the Jordan River, to try to avoid as much of Samaria as possible. He didn't have to go directly through the city of Sakaar there. He's not trying, he doesn't need to go straight there, or does he? Does this rabbi, Jesus, need to go there? The verse says he had to pass. This verse, what it's saying, had to, is it's necessary. It was necessary. That's what the language is saying. Why? Because he had a divine appointment, an appointment with a woman, a woman at a well. We have a picture here of, of Jacob's well. This picture is taken in 1894. Some of the marble runes there is from an ancient church that was there. Nowadays, there's actually a new church over it, so we do know where this is. Jacob's well was really well known in the day. By the time Jesus got there, um, it was already around for 1,800 years and still producing water. Actually, it was still producing the best water. People would come for a long ways away if they could, if they could get there to try to get this water. It was great water. In verse 6, it says this, Jesus arrives and he's weary. But here he's weary, we'll see he's thirsty, we'll see he's probably dirty, certainly in that day. And as we end this scene, this scene one, where Jesus goes, Jesus' necessary journey, the had to journey, what we see is this divine appointment he has, a divine appointment. And he's probably dirty, certainly we'll see he's thirsty in a minute, and he is tired, it already says that. And it made me think, this week, that divine appointments aren't always easy, right? I mean, should we expect them to be? Of course not. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just a joy. Other times they're not. So sometimes today, maybe this week, we need to recalibrate and think and adopt and adapt our attitude to realize that divine appointments aren't always easy, and that's okay. All right, moving into scene two. Scene one, now to scene two, the Samaritan woman joins the well. So Jesus was there alone, now it's the Samaritan woman. This is the place where they're coming to get water. Verse seven, 
verse seven through nine. I'm gonna read it. It says this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city, away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is asking for water. That's actually shocking. It's shocking. Why? Because he's breaking so many social norms of that day. The first is Jesus is alone, meeting with a woman alone. You just don't do that. Not in that day. But in verse 8, you could see the disciples left. Would they leave on their own? Absolutely not. Jesus sent them away. Why? So he could create the space to meet this woman alone. Seems shocking. Second thing that's shocking, he's a rabbi. So any good rabbi of the day, any good Jewish rabbi of the day would want to be ceremonially clean. If he were to take a drink from a foreign person, whoever that is, this foreign woman, he would be ceremonially unclean. Second shock. Third shock. In verse 9, what does it say? It says, Jews have no dealings. This is John the Apostle inserting this for us. The woman didn't say this. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She knew that. Perhaps she was a little bit curious, but certainly she was a little shocked. She knew the cultural hate between these two people, the Jews and the Samaritans in the north. He's taking a risk. About 722 years before this time, the feared Assyrian army came in from the north, came into this area, this region where they are right now, which was the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, and took away most of the Jews into captivity. Well, they mixed the population at that time in this region, and then when the Jews finally came back, or were allowed to come back, the Samaritans that were there violently opposed the Jews coming back into that region, which was originally theirs. Not only that, there was this counterfeit temple at Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans set up to worship God. And they decided, the Samaritans, that they were the keeper of the law. That the law of Moses, they were the ones to take care of it, nobody else. You can imagine the strife between these two people. So, that's shocking that they're even talking, but it gets maybe even a little more odd in verses 10 through 15, there's this water metaphor being introduced. And what's weird about this is that Jesus is having a theological discussion with a foreigner. The first of two theological discussions he's going to have. Remember the setting there at Jacob's well, right? The best water around, or so it seems. They're both coming to get water, or so it seems. Let me read John 4.10. John 10 says this, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. At this point, she's probably thinking this guy's a little crazy or maybe, maybe you'd be confused. I know I would be confused. She says in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. In verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Down in verse 15, she finally says, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw more water. But, but what Jesus is doing with this water metaphor is he's setting up a contrast. A contrast between himself. He is the living water that can meet her deepest spiritual need and give her satisfaction. That he's contrasting to the well water, which is seemingly the best water around or is it and then jesus goes on and he's talking about the living water in verse 14 here's what he says he says whoever drinks of the water 
that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then he says, this living water will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she must be thinking, who is this guy? What's this gift? Or maybe she's thinking, what is this living water he's talking about? Lots of questions must be going through her mind right now because being a Samaritan who didn't accept the, the prophet's writing in the Hebrew Old Testament, she wouldn't have known that the living waters referred to God, both in Jeremiah chapter 2 and Zechariah 14 and in other places. You know, your body needs water to survive, doesn't it? It needs every organ, every tissue, your digestive system, everything you can think of pretty much needs water. It's what delivers oxygen to your body. Jesus is using her need, actually our need, for water, for physical water. It's life or death, right? And he's constructing this situation, this appointment, this divine appointment to give her something better, something different, something more than what the physical water could give her. He's using this discussion to get her attention, to give her something deeper, even deeper than Jacob's well, something that's more refreshing, something that's so much better. And it's him. It's Jesus Christ himself. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I wanted to read the Bible all the time. There was a lot I didn't know. And I, was, I, just, I just read, 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 trying to figure out everything I could. And I didn't know I was that thirsty for God. I was thirsty for God. And I had this really cool jean jacket. Okay, at least I thought it was f- cool, but probably wasn't that cool. But inside you'd open up and there was this big uh, pocket in there. And so I'd take, I had this, this study Bible and it was kind of a big one. I'd stick it in there and I wasn't trying to be cool, but it was just, I wanted it to be with me as much as I could. So when I had breaks, maybe I could um, read about it, uh, read, read the word. And, and so it's just, I was so thirsty for God. And she's not quite there yet, knowing who this is she's talking to you yet. But in one way, she's like Nicodemus. Nicodemus and the woman at the well both were kind of confusing what Jesus was getting to, the physical versus the spiritual realities. But different in that he, of course, was this insider, actually above, uh, Jewish leader of the day. And she is, according to the Jews, a foreigner, right? And she certainly isn't a religious leader. But Jesus does what? He treats them both with equal dignity. So this scene we're in, which is scene two, Jesus engages. Jesus is shocking, but he's shockingly awesome. Here's how he's shockingly awesome. He breaks that barrier. He bridged, actually, that barrier to her. He made this conversation happen. And then second, to use some modern uh, language, he created a safe space for her. How did he do that? He sent the disciples to get food. She wouldn't want to talk or engage with all those other men around. He made a safe space for her. And then what did he do? He, in modern language, he made her feel seen. She mattered to this man. Fourth, he offered her himself living water. As she's beginning to and soon, she'll begin to realize this is the grace of God. He's giving her eternal life. He's offering her eternal life. And this cleansing that only comes from God. That's why he's using this metaphor. But I don't think she's quite there yet. As we move on to scene three, Jesus confronts. He confronts her sin, her view of worship, and her view of Messiah. This is where it gets interesting. At verse, 
I think it's already interesting. This is where I think it gets more interesting. <laughs> Verse 16. This is where, right after this, these short few verses now, 16 through 19, I think this story could be over. It probably could have been over. Because the tension here is overwhelming if you knew what was happening there in that day. It turns up about 10 notches, the tension scale, and things could just blow up. Let me read verse 16 through 19. Here we go. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is cringy. <laughs> this is cringy. If you were from the town and you happened to be hiding on the other side of the well listening in, you probably wanted to bolt by then. You probably want to leave. Unless, of course, you like drama, like the reality TV shows, which I don't think they had back then. I mean, this, you would know, if you were a townsperson listening into this conversation, here's what you would know. You would know that this woman was currently in an adulterous affair with a married man. You would know that she'd had five husbands already and divorced five times. You would know her background. And that's why she's by herself. During this day and age, when, when, when women would get together, what they would do is they would go to the well together. This was social time. They would get their jars, they would go, and they would be together. It was a wonderful thing. She's not invited. She's not part of this. Jesus points out her sin, and she agreed. So now, you'd think, she should leave. Doesn't this sound awful? No. Why doesn't she leave? I think the first reason she doesn't leave is this. Jesus does not shame her. He does not shame this woman. If she was shamed, she would have left. But there's something, the second thing is why she didn't leave. I, we know from earlier, even in the Gospel of John and other places, Jesus is full of this amazing grace mixed with this amazing truth, ability to give truth that captivates and overwhelms people. And so this is what she's experiencing. Not shame, grace and truth at the same time. It's this curiosity that she has is keeping her from leaving. And she's probably wondering inside, okay, you just talked about this living water. What is that? Third thing, again, she hasn't left. Why not? Well, she knows he's a prophet now. She's already said that. You know, she's starting to realize that to him, she's a real person, to that he knows more, that he must be able to understand my deepest spiritual need because he knows God. And we're getting towards this place where she is seeing that her sins, her forgiveness of sins, are possible in his eyes. That's what I'm seeing in this scene right now. Jesus seems to be giving her something she probably hasn't ever had before, and that's hope. He's not shaming her. Instead, he's giving her grace and truth. And maybe that's what we all need today. I don't know where you're at right now, but friends, if, if you know anyone in that boat, maybe it's you who needs help, who needs hope, Jesus, the living water. That's where it's found. Maybe this Samaritan woman, if you think of her for a moment, what probably was happening to her in that day, she was probably used, probably abused, she was probably thrown out by multiple men. 
Jesus gives forgiveness for whatever we've done of sins, but he gives eternal life and he gives hope. He sees you no matter where you are. He gives forgiveness. If you want shame, don't go to Jesus. Jesus will take it away. If you want shame, go somewhere else. Go to Jesus. He'll take away your shame. He doesn't give shame. Verse 14 says this about hope, and I already read it before, about hope and this living water he gives will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus does. That's what he gives. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and hope. Verse 20. Apparently, the Samaritan woman, she loves theology, and she loves practical theology, because now she's diving into it. And this, this question we'll see in verse 20 here. Yeah, Jesus, it's about worship. She's going to ask about worship. And Jesus is like, bring it on. I invented it. <laughs> you know, I created you for worship. This is in his wheelhouse. You know, he's ready to talk about this. So she's uh, asking a question about, about worship. But why does she bring this question up? Number one, it could be that she's trying to divert the current topic, right? Which was what? her sin, but it's probably more than that because she knows now this man is a prophet and he, it seems, can settle the ancient dispute because look, she's asking in verse 20, it says basically, she's saying, where are we supposed to worship? The, the Samaritans worshiped in Mount Gerizim, in the north, in Samaria. The Jews, where did they worship? A temple mount in Jerusalem. Again, this is one of the main dividing factors between these two peoples. So she asks in verse 20, in verse 20 where are we supposed to worship? So what Jesus does is he starts clarifying at this point. He goes through a few things. First, what he does is this. Verse 22, he says, salvation is from the Jews. Don't read that too fast. Salvation is from the Jews. That probably didn't sit well with her. Again, the Samaritans really didn't receive the, um, receive the uh, prophet's writings. And it's very clear in the Hebrew scriptures, it's very clear in our Old Testament, that the Messiah was come from the Jews. The line of David, King David, the Davidic line. And that's Jesus right in front of her through the line of David. She doesn't know that yet. Then he goes on to verse 23, where he's getting to the heart of worship. Here's what it says. We have it on the screen. The heart of worship, he's explaining. He says this to her. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Let me break that down. The hour. What's the hour? Well, the hour is the time, the glorious display of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This hour is now here. He's meaning it's right here, right around the corner. It is coming. And then true worshipers will do what? They'll worship in spirit and truth. In spirit is where our spirit, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, anybody who trusts in Jesus for salvation, believing in him, gets the Holy Spirit inside of them, living and dwelling. And so then we can worship in spirit, with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. And the truth, worshiping in truth, is worshiping through and with the full revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, revealed to all mankind, spirit and truth. This is the kind of worship he's talking about. Basically, he's saying, it's not going to be on your mountain. It's not going to be on the Jewish mountain. It's going to be in spirit and in truth. And that who's the Father is seeking, seeking to bring those into worship. So 
uh, Jesus's mission, his journey, this divine appointment we've been talking about. It says in verse 23, for the father is seeking such people to worship him. That's why he came to earth. And that's why he went to Samaria to seek, to find those in Samaria, this woman, others who will come in and worship the father. But before we get there, well, the, the question is, did this really happen? We're about to get there. She's not quite there yet. Look what happens in verse 25. The woman said this to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She knows about the Messiah. She believes the Messiah is coming. What does he say? Jesus said to her right after that, I who speak to you am he. She wants the Messiah to come. She knows he has answers. She already said that. Probably wants unity. That's what she's looking for. He can answer all these questions. Oh, he already is. He said, I who speak to you am he. That literally means this. I am the one who speaks to you. And she might know this, what this means. She, at this point, actually, she already did. She does know this because we can look at what she does here in a moment. What he's saying is the I am. That is the self-existent one, the self-existent God. God who revealed himself, I am, to Moses. He's saying right to her right now, and she's hearing it and she's receiving it. He's saying, I am deity, I am God, I am the Messiah. Right now, the cat is out of the bag and you can't put that cat back in. Now, scene changes a little bit. A little bit that the disciples, verse 27, they're coming back, they're coming back from the town. They are astonished that he is talking to this woman here by herself. She leaves, maybe because they came back. She leaves her water jar, she goes back to town, probably running back talking about this supernatural man who just seems to know everything, but I think there's a lot more we'll see here in a moment. She is striking their curiosity with what she says in verse 29. Here's what she's saying to the people of her town. She goes, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, she's not really questioning at this point. What is she doing? She's raising their curiosity with a question, why? She doesn't have the authority in that day, nor does she have the reputation in her town to make a claim that I've found the Messiah. So she's having them come out. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In verse 30, we see the Samaritans now coming out from the town She's brave in what she's doing. This ordinary woman is brave in what she's doing. This woman is now an evangelist. Remember her past? She's, she's, talking, she's actually bringing up her past when she's talking to these people. So she's exposing herself yet again, maybe to more shame, whatever it is. But she's more interested in introducing these people, the people of her town who probably look down on her, to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Come and see. Remember she said, that he told me all that I ever did? Can you imagine? That must have been hard for her to say that, but she cares more about people knowing that the Messiah is here than all the junk from her past. Introducing people to Jesus is, is so much about questioning, asking questions, so much about helping people with their curiosity, and, and often, it's so often about telling people what Jesus has done in your life, your testimony. So we're, we're in scene three, 
wrapping up, Jesus confronts her sin. He confronts an, an, uh, really her view of worship and her view of Messiah. The true identity of Jesus Christ is revealed. Her deepest spiritual need for forgiveness is revealed. He didn't shame her, remember? He didn't shame her. He answered her questions and he helped her understand what it meant to worship God. And now we move from scene three into scene four. And here's the disciples. He's trying to, Jesus is going to get the disciples more focused as to why they're there in the first place. Scene four is this. Scene four is Jesus instructs it's harvest time. Verses 31 through 38. Here's the setup. They're a little distracted because of the physical needs. They want the rabbi teacher to eat something. They want him to drink something. He still hasn't, (laughs) this isn't funny at all, but he still hasn't eaten. He still hasn't drank yet. He's probably thirsty, but he's focused, Jesus is, because the spiritual needs are coming from the town. They're coming right at them. Just like I said back in verse 30. Look at verse 35, the second part. Jesus saying this to his disciples. There's the town, here's the well. Jesus saying, look, I can imagine Jesus going, look, I tell you to the disciples, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. What is white for harvest? White for harvest is just a term it would mean. It would mean that um, they're ripe. They're ripe for harvest. He's saying, look around. The droves of people, they're coming. Look at their spiritual hunger. They're coming to see. It's time to gather them in. The disciples are part, the disciples are part of Jesus' divine plan to bring the disciples to the Messiah. How do we know that? Verse 38 says this. I sent you, this is Jesus talking, I sent you, the disciples, to reap that which for you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What's Jesus doing here? He's just giving a farming metaphor again. He's been using that. These illustrations that these people, they're like a crop. They need to be brought in. They're ripe, but put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Remember the rift between these two peoples, right? The foreigners, the Samaritans, and the Jews. The disciples might be thinking something like, I'm sorry, we're doing what? Or maybe they're saying, wait a minute, they're not Jews, remember? Or maybe they're saying, they, they don't even believe in the Old Testament, our, our, our prophets. They don't even believe our prophets. Why would I do that? But Jesus is bringing in these Samaritans into God's family. It is the will of the Father and Here's a bonus. There's rewards attached for doing this labor. Look at verse 36. If you have it there, I will, we have it on the slide. It says this in verse 36. Already, this is Jesus talking, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper, those who are, are laboring, doing God's work, and those who are reaping, those who are bringing in the harvest, the joyous part of that, may rejoice together. Wages here is a, is a future reference to, to rewards. It's rewards in heaven. This is in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 10. It's all over. These rewards we get, you get, for working for God's kingdom, laboring, sowing, reaping, bringing people in where we can't get taxed. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Back in verse 38, you remember Jesus said this, others have labored. 
Jesus is talking about the people like the Old Testament prophets, probably. He's probably talking about uh, John the Baptist, people who have been doing sowing, that hard work. But church, when I look out here today, I see those like Old Testament prophets. I see people like John the Baptist. I'm not saying you're old. <laughs> I'm not saying that you smell like John the Baptist. I'm not saying that you're dressing funny. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm talking about is people who will be receiving rewards because of the work, the hard work that they've done for the Lord. One day in heaven, I see Awana workers. I see Sunday school teachers. I see care team people who deliver foods in the name of Jesus. I see people who work with youth, uh, students. I see people, men and women, who care about the Lord and bring others to the Lord. I see people who do one-on-one discipleship. I see people who do one-in-many discipleship. I see people who love their neighbors. That's what I'm seeing. Like Jesus, it doesn't matter where they're from. You labor for the Lord. Thank you for what you do. That's scene four. Scene five, the amazing conclusion. The amazing conclusion because here, Jesus saves even Samaritans. (laughs) Yeah, that's the point. He's coming to save the Samaritans. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. That means they've accepted him as Messiah. They're putting their trust in this God-man. Because why? Because of the woman's testimony. And in verse 41, though it says, and many more even believed after that because of his word. Because of Jesus' teaching. Jesus, they spent, some, they spent a few days there. Verse 42 says this. When the uh, people are talking about, um, the town's people are talking about Jesus, they said this. This is indeed the savior of the world. They got it. These aren't Jews. These are Samaritans. They got it. Remember back at the beginning? When I asked you to think about what comes to your mind when you think of the word foreigner, what does that mean to you? You have your experiences. You all have your interactions. We all have opinions. But I hope now, and I've had to go through this journey again this week, what comes to your mind or does it come to your mind more quickly, like Jesus, to see people made, others who are made in the image of God, those other people that need the living water, like I need the living water, you need the living water, we all do. So given this journey then today that we've been on with Jesus, this big idea is this, Jesus' disciples take the routes others avoid. We can go straight to people. We don't need to avoid. We can follow our Savior because everybody needs the living water. Let me add a few more so what's to this. Of all the things we've just seen on the journey already that were so evident, I'll add a few more so what's as we go on. The first is this. Pray to have the heart of Jesus for people of all nations. Pray, pray, pray to be more like the Savior. It's so pleasing to the Lord. Second is this. Know that only through Jesus. Know this. It's only through Jesus the living water, that anyone can have eternal life. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. To be saved, to be in heaven forever with Jesus is not about what you've done, the good things you've done. It's not about your church attendance. It's none of that. All of that is so secondary. To come To Jesus is what's needed for forgiveness of sins. Let him be the one who takes you to heaven. 
Third thing is know that God can only be worshipped in spirit and truth by those who truly believe the gospel. Just about what I said before, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Know that. Only then, by believing the gospel, can we worship in spirit and truth. And finally, the fourth thing is this. As a believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know this, your testimony is powerful. Are you ready? Are you ready with your testimony? Do you know, before I came to Christ, I came to Christ, and now what has he done in my life? Can you say that in a few minutes to somebody, to help somebody who's curious understand Jesus, to introduce somebody to Jesus? If not, I'd love to meet with you afterwards because I'd like to just help you along that journey to know your testimony, to be able to say it like the Samaritan woman where many come to saving faith because of this woman's testimony. Now we're going to go to a time of communion. And as we go into a time of communion... I want you to know that if you're here visiting from another church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, then by all means, take communion with us together. This is open to everyone in the family of God. If you're not sure where you're at with Jesus today, then come see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But don't take communion today. But what you can do, though, is if you know that in your heart, Jesus is calling to you. You feel God's prompting, God's moving, and you know you need to be forgiven of sins. You know Jesus died and rose from the dead, and you can believe that for your salvation. Do it today. Even proclaim that by taking communion with us. If today is that first day of salvation for you, welcome to the family of God. And so in a moment, we're going to be singing a song Uh, You can get a communion cup if you don't have it during the song. They're back by the double doors to the left column and to the right column. You can grab one in just a few moments. But let's take a moment and pray. And as we do, ask God to search your heart. Where is there unconfessed sin? And thank him for what he has done. The living water that he has given you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.